honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Yo, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Arbin Misfit Show. And today we have an amazing individual. His name is Derek, and he's the CEO and founder of Hawkins IP, personal brand lawyer, and just does a lot of amazing things as far as like that that goes. <laughs> right. I'm a trademark guy. Trademark. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I definitely gotta come through you, help me out with my hey, man. stuff. Yeah. What got you into law? Into law. Woo. That that dates back to high school days, more or less. It really was rooted in uh, my parents saying that I love to argue. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> did you do uh, debate club or anything like yeah, that in high debate. school? No, uh, I think what's what's solidified, what solidified it for me, apart from my parents saying, "Hey, you love to argue and talk back. You should be an attorney." Was I took this course called the Law and You, okay. my junior year of high school. And I'll never forget, my teacher's name was Mr. Brown. He was this Italian guy. He did real estate law. He had on these cool suspenders, all these gold rings, <laughs> these cool ties. Um, but what really gravitated me towards him was just how witty he was. He was incredibly sarcastic, but he was incredibly intelligent at the same time. Um, and he just kind of broke down how we should read a case, digest it, dissect it, understand you know, what the law is, what the issue is. Um, you know, what the law is that applies to it and how the court came to its conclusion. And then I just, I got really, I became really enamored with that process. And I just say, you know what, I went to law school. So I just followed the path. <laughs> uh, yeah. Duffy, Duffy. That's, that's awesome. Finding your passion at, uh, I guess, young age, right? Yeah, right. man. And it's, uh, I think apart from just having, uh, I guess, somewhat of a great mentor, my my teacher at that time was more so, Experiencing experiencing some things firsthand. What um, one of my good friends when I was in high school got into an altercation with another student. Um, I don't remember who started what, but they ended up fighting, coming to blows, um, and teachers came and separated them into different classrooms. And later on that day, a police officer came and was questioning some of the students and everything. And they went to my friend, and instead of just asking him questions, they pretty much like grabbed him and was like banging him against the lockers in our high school. And we're like, you know, we're fifteen years old Jeez. at the time. So, you know, that, that ended up culminating in a lawsuit against the police department in my town back in East Brunswick. But just knowing that my friend went through that, having conversations with him about it, and just having this feeling of just being powerless in the whole grand scheme of everything, really just it resonated with me. It got me angry. I guess if you want to get cliche with it, it lit a fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it really did. Um, even though I don't do criminal law, that was the spark that led me to even have an idea in my mind and say, you know what? I want to be an attorney when I'm older. So why trademarks over criminal law then? Right. So I dabbled dabbled in criminal law for a little while. (laughs) I did not like it. Um, When I first opened my practice, it was general counsel, general practice. So I was doing a little bit of everything. Um, And the main source of my clients at that time was from the public defender's office. You can actually get private appointment from the PD's office to take on some cases. So um, I did a little bit of everything. Um, You know, some felony thefts, some misdemeanors, possession, all that stuff. Um, the turning point for me uh, in terms of not 
enjoying doing criminal law at all was I was up in Brown County. I was visiting this gentleman who was incarcerated up there. And his specific offense was he was distributing, uh, it was like Oxycontin and heroin to high school kids in, wow. front of, in front of like a strip mall somewhere. And one of the things that I always wanted to, I always did when I was speaking to clients was I made it a point to ask them point blank, hey, did you do this? And, you know, whether it, the answer is yes or no, this as your counsel, I have to know so I can make sure I can provide an adequate defense for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I asked him this question point blank and he was like, yeah. Wow. Can you get me off? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and at, yeah. And at the time, you know, in our conversation up to that point was me just kind of laying out the effect, the elements of the offenses, what our strategy would be to attack it. Um, you know, the sentencing guidelines in terms of what he might be looking at if he were to get charged, get it fully, um, you know, uh, uh, indicted and everything, not indicted, but if he were to actually be found guilty at right. the end of the day. And, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking my son's like one years old at the time. And I'm looking at this guy and actually, I didn't really want him to be free, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and <it's, Tough laughs> to be honest, in my mind, I was like, if it was up to me, you would stay right where you are, yeah. my dude, <laughs> right where you are. Um, Thankfully, I, I had a lot of colleagues up there who I was working with with the case. So I was able to you know, pass the case on to some other attorneys just because I didn't feel that I could represent him and provide the zealous defense that we're supposed to get, as we're supposed to give, and that you're constitutionally you know, allowed to have. So um, it didn't work out. But that encounter really solidified in my mind that that was not the area of law for me. Um, and when I was entering law school... My goal at that time was to do entertainment law. One of the main reasons I came to Marquette Law for law school was, well, one, they gave me some money, some scholarship yeah, money. Always so nice. that's always nice. Yeah. Um, they had a brand new building, but they, had a, they have a very good sports law program. Okay. Um, I had no idea what sports law was, but I knew I wanted to do entertainment. So they go hand in hand. Um, and one of the core areas of law that hinges on pretty much all aspects of entertainment is intellectual property. Whether you're writing songs, whether you're writing scripts, whether you're shooting video, um, if you're building a brand for a business, these are all things that touch intellectual property. So I studied IP in law school. Um, So after this encounter with this gentleman, right, uh, (laughs) and I decided, you know what, I don't want to do criminal law anymore. I opened my own practice um, and I had a series of iterations until I got comfortable enough marketing myself as a trademark attorney. Um, And then I just turned the switch and said, you know what, I'm just doing this now. And it's been great because it's my passion. Trademark law is very lucrative. It's one of the few areas of law that touches every industry. Right. No matter what you what you provide as a service, no matter what goods that you sell, you all are we're all building brands in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so, me being in this area of law allows me to interface with coaches, consultants, manufacturers of brake pads, right. uh, health and wellness gurus. Um, people who own television stations. It's crazy how many types of clients I can have just by focusing on this one area. So. Like I come from the arts background, you know, mm-hmm. hip hop and this and that. Yeah. Uh, and I have a lot of like friends who are like musicians or yeah. like that make art for a living. Mm-hmm. And like me knowing them, like I don't think there's like that understanding that you need to trademark your, your work or like you need to right. trademark your brand. Like what's, I guess like, What's the importance of mm-hmm. that? You know, like yeah. just just so like anyone that's watching, like to keep it in mind, so they don't get like fucked over in the future. You know, yeah, it happens a lot, man. Um, I'll I'll start by just kind of breaking down the differences between Definitely. the two, right? So, um, because people 
mix them up all the time. So a, a copyright is, first of all, both of them are rights. Okay. Right? So think about it as they're both things you acquire by doing something, right? Mm-hmm. So the copyright is rights that you have for, um, based on the basic sense, a work of original authorship that is okay. put into a tangible form, right? An original work of authorship that's manifested in some tangible form. So think of an idea that you have in your mind. As soon as you take that idea and you put it into the world in a medium that we can all encounter with our senses, we mm-hmm. can see it, we can smell it, we can taste it, we can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that are entitled to copyright protection, right? So yeah. original works of authorship fixed in a tangible medium of expression is the way we, the way we describe it. But it's really like ideas in real world form. Mm-hmm. Um, a trademark is anything that identifies the sale of a good or the providing of a service. Okay. It's a source identifier, right? And so this is why people get confused sometimes because in some cases you can have both. So to give you an example, um, if you're commissioned to uh, create a really intricate logo designed for somebody, mm-hmm. that's a piece of artwork that came from your mind and that you put, it on, and you put onto a piece of paper or you put onto a tablet, wherever you designed it, right? Mm-hmm. At a base level, that can be entitled to copyright protection because it's an original work of authorship and it's fixed in a tangible medium, something I can see. Um, now, if so, I, I then take that graphic and I say, you know what? I want that to be the logo for my business. And I start selling clothing and I put it on my label, it's on my tag, and it now identifies the sale of clothing. It now can be operating as a trademark too, okay. right? So that's kind of the difference. And so for artists, what's really important is making sure that you own your craft, you own your artwork, and you own the, the, it's the business side of it. You own the brand that is providing the art, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? So, you know, it, a lot of artists have, um, whether you're a musician or whether you're, you know, providing uh, artwork itself, um, you'll have like maybe a stage name or you'll have a name that you go by. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that, that's your brand. It's literally the thing that identifies you and tells me the source of this piece of artwork. In many cases, that is something, that's your trademark. You can get that registered so you can own that name and control how it's used mm-hmm. and how it's used throughout the entire country. And you also want to register a copyright for your artwork because you don't want to have someone else copy your work and you have a limited means of enforcing your rights against them, right? Um, and in my experience, I usually get brought into these conversations with artists after the fact, <laughs> when something has went down, when someone is trying to be shady and steal their work or... You know, there's an altercation where someone else is using a similar name or a logo, and now we're playing. You know, now we're playing defense instead of playing offense, right? So, got it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of your job is, unfortunately, people that are coming to you too late or after too much has been done. <laughs> yeah. What's one thing you would tell people to make your job easier? Oh man, because I bet you you think of, you put that sense in your head a lot. Man, like eighty five percent of my clients are. Uh, in that boat. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. Um, and, and it's cool. It's, I think for me, it, it allows me to, um, it's, it's trial by fire in many ways, right? Because the stakes are now, okay, we're not just playing offense and trying to strategize. We're trying to put together a plan to defend something that could you know, potentially lead to a big problem for you, right? Um, I say if you're, if you're creating anything, and this this applies to providers of products. This provides to provide uh, service providers. Um, I know a lot of people that we interface with are in the information services industry. You know, you're doing podcasts, you're doing online courses, whatever the case right. may be. Um, just cons- at least consult an attorney when you're creating things. You don't have to hire them right away. I understand there's a big investment there, um, but understand it's an investment. 
like anything else, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What you don't want to do is commit a significant amount of resources to marketing a brand or marketing materials, creating a bunch of content under a certain name and then getting out there and putting money behind the promotion of it only to find out that that item or that name that you're using can never be yours because someone else is already using it. Or that artwork that you're doing is actually someone else's and you made a derivative work of it, you know, without proper authorization or license. So just having a candid conversation to say, hey, look, this is what I'm thinking about. Here's my idea. Is there anything I should be concerned with? And yes, you might have to hire an attorney up front, um, self-serving as an attorney, me or anybody, we really don't care. Right. Um, but just being proactive before you invest is the biggest advice I can give. Because if you do that and you, you at least have a conversation, there's going to be a lot of things that we talk about in that 15, 20 minute conversation that will prevent you from incurring loss later on. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's very important. Like <laughs> the work that you do is... Very important. I feel like a parent, man. I feel like a parent (laughs) who like told his kid, you know, don't go outside without a jacket on. And the kid was like, whatever, mom, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. And they go outside without a coat on and they come back and like, I got a cold. And it's like, I told you not to go outside with a coat on. Now I got to make you soup. Now I got to bring you to the doctor. Now I got to go buy some medicine. That's that's such a perfect, (laughs) perfect that's my life. Right. And I have three kids. So I have to do that at home too. You know what I'm saying? You're just like my clients. (laughs) Hey man, I had had this conversation a lot. Like, man, I come, go to work and deal with kids and come home and deal with kids. But I love all my clients, though. I love all you guys. You guys are awesome. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, like, so I've, I mean, you came to, like, our LinkedIn event, and I've, mm-hmm. you know, I see your LinkedIn posts and just, just photos. Like, you're still kind of, like, I guess we were talking earlier about, mm-hmm. like, how, like, when you picture a lawyer, it's just this, like, yeah. suit and tie. But, like, <laughs> you, you still, like... I guess you still manage to be yourself and dress mm-hmm. how you probably, how you enjoy to dress. Yeah. So like you got a fresh sneaker on right now and, you know, always coming on like super fresh, yeah. like street, street wear style. Like, I guess talk to us a little bit about like that and about yeah. like the, I mean, I, I read that you're also like into sneakers. So like I maybe, am, maybe you just talk a little bit I about am. that. Um, I mean, a lot of it is just being comfortable in your own skin, man. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my objectives when I opened my own practice was if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. There's a there's a traditional way of operating a law firm. It works, you know, for some people. It doesn't work for me, more or less. Um, and so in furtherance of that, I decided, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what I want to do. It's my firm, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, and it's the beauty of being on your own is you can decide what that culture is like for yourself. And in many, in many respects, when you go to a larger law firm, you don't have that freedom. You are assimilating to whatever that culture is in exchange for a paycheck at the end of mm-hmm. the day. So, you know, you don't want to ruffle any feathers. There's politics you got to deal with. You know, there's always this ivory tower mentality, you know, in the, in the attorney-client relationship. Anyway, I didn't want any part of that. And I know I, I learned very early on just by speaking with my clients candidly that they didn't want that crap either, man. I mean, they preferred the down to earth guy who, you know, I show up and we're both wearing Supreme, which is cool. Like, yeah, all right, cool. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and the, the cool thing is the nature of the type of law that I do, um, I don't have to go into court very often mm-hmm. unless things escalate really bad, right? So, um, I mean, I still, I, I, I tend to be somewhat tutorial, so I do like my blazers and you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But more often than not, I like, like to be comfortable at work. 
I interface with the patent and trademark office on my computer every single day. That's how I interface with my clients. So I don't need to show up in a big suit. It's not as comfortable as wearing my sweatpants or my jeans or my t-shirt to work. Um, And most of my clients aren't even in the state. Most of my clients are in California, Texas, Florida, um, and Canada, just in terms of numbers. Um, I think that's just... I think that's a direct correlation with those areas and those ent- the entrepreneurial activity in those areas as well. Um, because a lot of my clients are startups. A lot of them are established mid-sized businesses who are growing. And, you know, a lot of them are innovative and young too. So there's, there's a, there's a commonality there too. So mm-hmm. not that I'm trying to, you know, push away people of a certain demographic or certain age group. It's just that I seem to identify more with that age range. So I'm trying to make a law firm that is, comfortable, that is open, that embraces change, that is innovative, and that is client forward, right? So any, if I'm going to invest in anything or worry about the perception of my firm, it's always going to be, what would a client think right. about this? And honestly, I haven't had one client that gave a damn about whether or not I wore a suit. They give a damn about whether I'm good at my job, but I'm very good at my job. And that's right. what that matters. Exactly. I, yeah. I can do it in my t-shirt or I can do it in this $900 Absolutely. suit. Yeah. I'd rather for, forego the $900 suit for the t-shirt because that means I can pass those savings on to my client and yeah. I can spend the difference on some cool shoes for myself. Yeah. You know? right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. like more power to you, man. Like yeah. I think I think that's like one thing that's very like important. Just like upfront, like realizing like I'm working with a human being, like he's comfortable with himself. Like yeah, this is him. People, man. Like like and I and I think like a lot of like big corporation really like focus too much on like, oh, you have to like dress a certain way. Right. Instead of like focusing on like the skills and like you know, what, what the person have to offer. And for myself, like, I mean, just growing into like adulthood right now, like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have like mentors who, who are like always there themselves. So that like, kind of like shows me that I have to be myself too. So like I come to work super comfortably, like he does too. So like, just, just having this office like run by us is very like important. And it's just like so comfortable, like coming coming here and knowing that I don't have to like hide a right. part of myself. So, Hey, the dynamics of business is changing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's changing in a big way. Um, younger, younger kid. I mean, we're the next frontier, man. We are the next generation of people who are going to be the economy, mm-hmm. you know? So, and I, I, values are changing where at one point there was a lot of emphasis on formality on yeah. You wake up, you go to work from nine to five, you do your job, you have responsibilities, you come home, you have a family. It was very, you know, rigid and there's nothing wrong with the lifestyle, but it's, it seems that there's been a progression where now people are valuing more so work-life balance. There's a more, there's more value that's put on um, ownership, entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship has grown immensely over the last yeah. decade. Um, and, you know, yeah, things aren't, aren't the way they used to be. So mm-hmm. what would you tell CEOs or C-suites of those large firms in terms of building their culture. Cause like, you know, like you said, you don't want to, to have your client come in and be like, Oh, they're just another suit and tie asshole yeah. kind of guy. You know, you want, <laughs> you want them to feel comfortable right yeah. away. Cause like if you were to go to a client dressed like you are right now, I guarantee you 100% they would feel 10 times more comfortable than if somebody came in a suit and tie. That depends on the client too, though. I, I That's do, true. But like, okay. Yeah. So I was speaking from that my is, own person. I get, no, <laughs> I do. I, to be fair, I do have some clients who are, you know, have either scientific backgrounds or in finance, in the financial industry. Um, so it, 
and even with the, and they're more like institutional type clients, but with them, they, there's more of an expectation of formality there. Sure. And, and I can play that game. And I, like I said, I, I do enjoy dressing up every now and again. Yeah. So it's not a problem for me, especially if it's, I'm going to a client meeting, I'm going to negotiate the deal. You know, okay, I get it. I get yeah. that. Um, but I mean, by no means do you have to do like the, the way, do it the way I'm doing it. This right. is me. This is how I enjoy representing myself to my clients. So I guess in terms of what I would tell, you know, CEOs of larger corporations, just be you. I mean, it's as no as basic as that sounds and as simplistic as it is, worry more so about what is the human to human interaction with your clients and customers and what do they expect of you? What type of culture are you creating? Are you creating a culture that's that has a very stacked hierarchy that's very formal? If if it is, okay, then be true to that. And that's perfectly fine. But whatever that is, don't just try to put on a facade just because that's what you think a business is supposed to look like. There is no talisman corporate culture. Right. I mean, if anything, maybe it would be more relevant depending on what industry you're in. But other than that, if you want to create a culture where you have ping pong tables and beanbags in your office, then do that. Just make sure you do your job well. Also, yeah. like, don't have that and then be <laughs> terrible exactly. at your job. Absolutely. <laughs> that might be a problem. Uh, but it's especially in the service industry, if you provide a good service, if you can get the desired results for your clients, they are not going to give a damn about what you dress like. Right. They're not going to care about how nice your suites are in your office. No one's going to care about that stuff. That's all self-serving. A lot of it is ego, like getting the nice office, getting the new this, the glass, all that stuff is it's all ego, honestly. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm guilty of it, too. You know, I'm a business owner. There have been times where. I make vanity purchases from my office that have no practical <laughs> implication. You're the one that's there but all me, day. Let me stare at it, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. it looks nice in my office, you know? Um, like at one point I was going to get this really, really large pool table when I moved to my office. Uh, it was like 10 feet or something like that. And it couldn't fit into my oh, suite. Geez. Yeah. Uh, and I was really mad about it at first, but then I thought about it practically and I was like, well, I'm probably not going to use it that much. It looks nice. But that's about it. I think I'll save the money for <laughs> for something else. Um, yeah, to, to be direct with your question, just just be you. Uh, listen to your clients. Do good work, and you know, make sure that whatever your culture is, that it's embedded in your um, it's a it's embedded in the DNA of your company and how you hire, right? Because if you're going to be creating a brand and creating a culture for your business, you want to make sure that your employees who are going to be your initial ambassadors carry the baton too, because they're on the front lines. They're the ones who are going to be interfacing with your clients also. And so if there's, if there's no congruency between what you say your mission is and how it's being effectuated and, you know, kind of uh, acted upon, your clients are going to pick up on that. Very true. They're going to call bullshit real quick. Absolutely. You know, so. <laughs> Do you have any struggles when you were first starting out going from general practice to your own thing? Were there, what was like your biggest challenge? Was it clients acquisition or? Yeah. Um, it was a healthy mix of things. Client acquisition was definitely one of them. You know, I'm when I opened my practice, it was you know me and my apartment in the corner with a little desk and a computer, just trying to figure the dream. <laughs> figure figure it out, man. My son's like spilling uh, water and juice on my papers mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, I had no case management software whatsoever. Um, I think the hardest thing from switching over from a general practitioner to being niche was finding it. First, I mean, I always knew I wanted to do trademark law, but I had no idea what that looked like in practice. I didn't have that immediate type of experience or at the time anyone to look to to say, okay, this is what I want to kind of mirror this off of to a certain degree. So 
I stumbled through a lot of stuff. I stu- I stumbled through, you know, the process of acquiring clients. Um, I've stumbled through online marketing. I've stumbled through networking properly with people, uh, shooting video, something, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, uh, but the big, the biggest piece was having the confidence to represent a client in an area of law that I didn't have that much experience in at the time. Right? How did you combat that? I had to read a lot. Okay. Yeah, I had to read a lot. So for me, I got, and this, this is one thing that's interesting about law school. Um, so when I went to law school and I graduated, everyone in my family automatically thought I was like, I don't know, I was just Johnny Cochran all of a sudden. Okay. Like I can just do any problem. I can handle anything. I'm a lawyer, so I should know every area of law in and out. Thing about law school, um, and this might not be true for every law school in the country, but it's I think it's true for my my experience, at least at Marquette, is that law school teaches you how to think like a lawyer, not how to be one practically, okay. unless you cater your experience there to take some more practical courses in um, clinics and workshops that give you that on, you know, kind of that in-court experience right. or client interfacing experience. Um, so getting out of law school, I had a, I had a wealth of knowledge about trademark law and okay. about IP, um, what it was, the differences between the th- between all of them and so forth. But Practically speaking, like I had no idea how do I file a trademark application? Right. Like how do I challenge the validity of one? You know, how do I <laughs> properly do clearance for a trademark? How do I handle a licensing deal? Like I had no clue how to do any of these things. So what I did was said, okay, well, um, you know, I have some money from dealing with my PD clients. Let me invest in learning. So I purchased some CLEs, which is continuing continuing learning education. Okay. Um, that we're required to do on IP-related issues. Um, I got some subscriptions to um, Westlaw and Volters Kluwer. Those are two uh, two of the larger um, legal resources that we use as attorneys. Uh, and it's great because they have a lot of, it's a wealth of practical knowledge from other practitioners across the country that they just gather, that they aggregate together and they sell, right? right? So um, I went on there and I was like, well, that's, get to reading, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I just went through you know, the process of, you know, here's what a trademark application looks like. Here's how you file it. Here's how you prosecute one. Here's how you demonstrate use to the USPTO. Here's how you challenge a trademark. Here's what licensing looks like. Here's how you do clearance for it. And it was just all these things. And I have to read, I have about a year of me just kind of reading that stuff, yeah. I felt comfortable enough to say, okay, well, and, and in that year, I had about three or four clients that I've dealt with doing that doing trademark-related yeah. issues, too, or handling trademark-related issues. So I felt comfortable at that point. And then everything else has just been on-the-job training. So every, everything that I know now, which is nuts, none of it was really learned in law school. Funny I think that that's works. funny how that works, Yeah, right? it's like... None of it was learned in law school. <laughs> everything was on-the-job and uh, things that I learned either by reading some of these resources mm-hmm. I purchased, interfacing with opposing counsel on certain issues and learning from them, um, and this, you know, kind of having some mentors here and there, um, to work with as well. But yeah, law school taught me how to think like a lawyer, not how to be one per se. And part of that's my, the way I structure my curriculum too, right. mm-hmm. to a certain degree, but on the job training. Yeah. I think like a lot, of, especially like me coming out of high school and then going to college, I, I, I thought like I would learn everything in college and I'd be ready. But then like, I start like hearing a lot of stories where it's like, oh, I got hired. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just like <laughs> YouTube did and I like learned a lot the way. It's just like. I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> so my very, very first case ever um, it was in 2014. Um, 
my client's fine, by the way. So there's no like issue. <laughs> but um, I think I was handling like it was like a it was like a sentencing or something, something minor. Um, I think it was like a status or something. Um, but I go to court. I've never at this point I never represented a client in court before. I've done it in like a clinical. I've done it with mock trial, but I've never done it in real life. And so I'm sitting there and I was like, wow. Like I know, I know his case. I know this is just like a status hearing or something for sentencing. It's not a big deal, but I have no idea like what I say. Oh, jeez! To the just to like look like I know what I'm doing, you know? Right. Um, my cousin Vinny maybe comes to mind. <laughs> seriously, man, it was a my cousin Vinny moment. And so I'm sitting there and I take out my phone. I'm, I'm on YouTube and I was like watching. Okay, here's what you say. And thankfully, I wasn't called first. There was about seven other attorneys okay. with their clients there who had very similar. Um, a point where uh, similar hearings that day. And so I was listening to what they said. Okay. Wait, that, that applies to mine actually. Exactly right. Okay. I'll tweak a little bit to make it mine. All right. And I got up and did my thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we ended up getting my client's record expunged for whatever they were dealing with. But it was just funny to be sitting there. You know, I, gra- I graduated law school and it was it was so humbling because I was, I was very arrogant going into this. I'm like, oh, I'm yeah. suit. <laughs> I was like, woo, can't tell me nothing, man. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> Practically, what do I say? Yeah, you know, I. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny how that works. Yeah, definitely. it's funny how that works. That's, I think, with us, like production <laughs> side of like video stuff. Like, I mean, we we have like a you know good knowledge on just videography, but a lot of stuff we just learn along the way. Like, yeah. oh, I want to do this. Let me just look it up. You know, I mean, hey, ex- like we never stop learning. Yeah, experience just, is best teacher. Yeah, by far. Mm-hmm. I mean, is. I think I might have like a somewhat of a grievance with the way uh, the educational system works and just that I feel like there needs to be more of a practical component to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. Just, um, and I, I remember I was, I, I studied in, uh, in Germany for a semester when I was in law school and I'm not sure if this is still true now in terms of their system, but I was speaking with one of the students there um, just about, you know, kind of how the, the pathway to law works right. there versus in the United States. You know, here we, you know, we go to, go to high school, we go to college, take the LSAT, we go to law school, right. take the bar, um, and then you practice, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have your continuing, your CLEs to maintain your license and everything like that. Apparently over there, um, you kind of choose that pathway very early on. Like, I think it was in high school or something to the degree. I, I may be wrong because this right. years ago, but, um, and then you kind of follow a trajectory where you get exposed to all the areas of law, more like an apprenticeship to okay. a certain degree where you get to experience uh, private sector, you get to experience government, you get to experience, um, I guess, working for like a, a nonprofit or some philanthropic organization. Yeah. You get you get litigation side as well. And then based on your performance within those, you can specialize and then you follow your path that way, which seems a lot, it models more so the pathway of a doctor, right. more so than it does uh, uh, being an attorney in the US. And I felt that was really smart because, you know, to my point, my example earlier, I got out of law school and, and I didn't have a lot of clinicals in law school in terms of litigation and everything. But as, as part of a core curriculum, it should be, OK, maybe you should shadow an attorney for a year or two just to know what it be, what, what a day in the life is mm-hmm. like. And that should be core curriculum. Right. And or maybe if you want to be an attorney, great. In undergrad, there's some type of pipeline directly yeah. where you can get access to that type of experience you know, firsthand. So it's just interesting to see the differences between the two. And, and how they work with one another. Well, because a book yeah. can tell you what can happen, but yeah, right? when you get there, it's 
This is Absolutely real. Absolutely different. Oh, this is, this is real. <laughs> Who were some of your mentors when you were first getting started? I know she had touched that like, as you pivoted to trademarks and IP. You kind of had a few mentors. Yeah, what, did, what did they teach you? Man, it's interesting. So, one one of my one of my really good mentors uh, when I was in law school is uh, my man Steve Steve DeVogus. He's a he's a big attorney here in town. Um, I'm sure when this goes out, every, he knows like everybody. If you if you see him, he's like this six foot seven dude, he's a big guy. Um, but he's been my mentor, uh, just kind of in life and just as an attorney, how to navigate and live this life as an attorney, more or less. Um, and so I had a lot of conversations with him and I had a lot of conversations with my friend Cole White up in Green Bay. He's the guy I actually worked with initially when I, uh, before I opened my practice, um, just having conversations with them about what it's like to go on your own, you know, that, that, that kind of, you know, normal conversation you have, but what they taught me more or less is kind of some of the things you talked about already, just kind of being you, figuring out what you're good at, um, committing to it. If you don't have the resources, then you're going to have to, you know, finagle it, make it work, make it work somehow, you know? And so for me, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't know a lot of IP attorneys in the city at that point. Um, apart from like my professors from law school right. that I knew, but other than that, in terms of practitioners locally, I didn't really know many. And so what I had to do was, these basically the professors, the, the the law professors, the attorneys and practitioners who curated all these materials that I was reading were like my mentors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, even when I when I first started filing trademark applications and prosecuting them, you know, at a higher level, what I would do is if I encountered an issue that I didn't deal with more commonly, um, specifically this this happened when I was dealing with uh, Section Two D refusals, which is a refusal that the USPTO gives you for likelihood of confusion. Basically what it means okay. is you file an application to register your trademark. Uh, it's given to a trademark examiner that reviews it for substance. And th that examiner feels that your trademark is confusingly similar to one that's already been filed or one that's already registered. Okay. And so at the action item at that point is you have to provide a legal argument to basically say that the examiner is wrong. <laughs> and here's why, right? Um, but it's, it's a legal argument you provide. It's rooted in case law. There's a wealth of you know, precedent there you can follow. And so in my early responses, I just didn't know, you know how it's supposed to look, what it's supposed to sound like. Is it a traditional legal brief that we file in court? Is it a little different? And so what I would do is I would go and I would actually look up um, applications for famous brands and see what their attorneys were writing for I some like of those that. responses. Um, and I kind of Frankenstein my own. It's back to our thinking. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Version of it is to make, because I, I don't want to sound stupid. Right. And, that, and a part of that, you know, is, there's always that insecurity that you have, especially as a solo, that, you know, I don't have these resources. I don't have a big name behind me. I've never worked at a large firm. Why the hell would a client trust me to do this for them? Mm -hmm. And if they do trust me, do they have anything to like compare me against? And if it's an established attorney that works at a bigger firm that has all these resources, am I going to look like a a fucking idiot, right. you know, when I yeah. file my stuff or am I going to come off competent? You know, so in the back of my mind, while I'm filing these things, there's always been that little kind of uh, voice of doubt. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. That sounds dumb as hell, Derek. Why would you put that in there? You know? So, um, yeah, I had to constantly just go to other resources and, you know, like I said, piecemeal and Frankenstein my own arguments until I was able to come into my own voice. Um, and then, but once I did, you kind of hit your stride and I feel great now. But, you know, th those 
those attorneys who I've never met who wrote these arguments were kind of like my early mentors, yeah. you know, because I looked at their work and I said, I, I want to sound like him. I want to sound like her. I like the way that she used that argument there. I like the way that he used that verbiage there. I want to kind of take that and make it my own. Right. And, you know, I built it from there. That's awesome. How have you hushed that voice of you're not good enough? I know we've made a LinkedIn video about it, but. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. What's, what's, what's that? Yeah, man. Advice? Yeah. How to hush it. I don't think it ever. I don't think there's a way of hushing it. I think it's a matter of how you decide to react to it. Hmm. Um, just because I think that insecurity is a natural human emotion. It's just how you deal with that emotion that really defines the impact for you, right? So for some people, that insecurity can be crippling. You know, the insecurity mm-hmm. can lead you to lose confidence in yourself. It can lead you to uh, make rash decisions on, emotionally rather than logically. Um, you know, yeah, you know, so for me, it's more so, okay, at this point, I have a track record of work that I can look to, right? I have clients that I've worked with who have spoken publicly about my work with them. And seeing that, it's like, okay, it keeps me sharp, if anything. The insecurity, the insecurity in my mind morphed itself from being something that made me doubt myself to kind of a, uh, a constant checks and balances okay. internally for me, right? Just to keep my professional equilibrium in check. And so I'll never draft something or file it and be so arrogant to be like, yeah, I'm good. Right. Yeah. File that. Clerk, yeah. take that. <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's never going to happen. Um, so I'll write something, you know, I'll draft a brief or I'll you know, uh, send a memo to a client, email to opposing counsel, whatever it is. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, let me, let me just review this again just to make sure that this is yeah. here. Okay. So it keeps me sharp. Right. So, yeah. It, yeah. So I would say if, if you're dealing with any type of insecurity or doubt about how good you are at your job or whatever the case may be, and that doubt is rooted in lack of experience, because the only way you get good in this life at anything is through experience. Absolutely. Um, it's just a matter of how you interpret it, right? So okay. don't look at it as something where it's like, okay, I have this insecurity. I am lesser than because I don't have this. No, it's like, okay, I have this insecurity. What can I do to make sure that this doesn't remain a constant. So if it's, okay, you know what? I am, you know, I shoot video. I'm not really good at video. I don't really want to put them out there and look stupid. Okay, so what do you do? Go shoot some freaking videos. Get good at it. Practice. Put it out there. Or if you you don't want to post them right away, cool. You know, whatever you got to do. Um, But just work on your craft and hone it so you can build that confidence up eventually and you do have that experience. And keep in mind, there's no, I think people undervalue experience if it isn't in like the right form right and so it, I'm, I'm gonna we talked about my brother a little bit earlier today yeah um and i'm not gonna put all this business out there but we had <laughs> we had a conversation uh about his uh his future right or anything right okay. and so right now he's over at emerson he wants to be a screenwriter and so he was worried about getting opportunities out there to you know be a pa or at least get in that industry and get a foot in the door and during our conversation, I was like, dude, it's 2018, man. All you need is a camera, some friends, and a YouTube account. Yeah. Your phone, but it's not your phone camera. even, you know? Yeah. Write some stuff, hit your friends up, hit me up. Uh, we'll record whatever we need to do to shoot the short film for you, and we post it on YouTube. Yeah. And you just shoot a bunch of those and you get experience Definitely. doing that. Now you're an experienced filmmaker. Yeah. The film doesn't have to be professionally produced. It doesn't have to be backed by a major studio. Yeah. It doesn't have to have the backing of your institution or your college. Just get out there and do it. And then you, through you doing that, you now have experience. Yeah. So and it's like you learn so much from just doing too. It's just like, doing. Yeah. But there's this fear. There's this fear that 
this experience is not going to be worth anything because it's not co-signed by somebody, you know? Right. Nah, just go and do it. That's the, that's the experience itself, you know? I, I never had a law firm backing me initially. Right. Does that mean I don't know what I'm doing? No. It just means that I had to go and figure it out myself and learn it. And then once I learned it, I got good at it. And now I have my own practice and my own firm that does the exact same thing. And that applies to any industry oh, you're yeah. in and any service that you provide. Oh, yeah. Just very, experience very, is experience very is experience. True. Very true. Do you believe that there should be a pause post high school before you find your a gap year? Passion? I I say that there should be two years. Take like a gap year. I say um, it should be two <laughs> gap years. Because <laughs> some European countries do that. Yeah. Oh, you do. Yeah. Some like, do, like mandatory. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And some that's do military service, but that's a mm. whole another topic for a whole another time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, should there be a gap year? I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say like that. It has to be like a embedded thing in society where it's necessary. You know, that like you have to take a gap year. Right. Um, could it help? I think so. Um, figuring out what it is you want to do. I mean, because at seventeen, eighteen years old, you you don't know what you want to do. Some people do, but you don't really know what you want to do. Uh, and if you do, you probably have a, an iota of an idea of what it is you want to do at a, at a three thousand foot view, maybe. But. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not a believer in there being a right way to do pretty much about anything. You know, the way I was brought up, I was brought up that you had to go to college and my pathway was going to be doctor lawyer. I mean, you got it, parents. I'm an attorney, <laughs> so you won, you know. But um there was there was a point in time where I wanted to be a music producer. I, I was gonna go to um the Institute of Audio Research in New York. That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. My parents thought otherwise, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I don't regret not doing it. You never know what your life will turn out to be. But at the same time, there, there's always going to be this element of finding yourself and figuring out what you want. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, you leaving that cushy job that everyone thinks is amazing and secure to do something that's a little bit more scandalous. You know, like, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want to do, then do it. I mean, it's your life at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think a lot of people... F- focus so much on just kind of living by these rules that other people have made, but these rules are incredibly arbitrary and really don't have any logical backing to them. It's just, that's what it's expected of you. And that's what society expects, you know? So most jobs, they hire you, but they won't hire you until you have a bachelor's degree as if a bachelor's degree validates your ability to do a job. But I can tell you right now firsthand, I know some idiots with bachelor's degrees. Mm -hmm. I know some idiots with master's degrees. I know some idiots with PhDs. So just because you're book smart doesn't mean you're smart for your position, you know? So mm-hmm. there can be there, there. I think there are other ways to kind of measure that. And that's kind of a tangent, but um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that you should take a gap year or that you shouldn't. I would just say that there's, there's more than one way to figure out where you, how you're supposed to get to where you want to go in life. And I think it's, it, it depends on the person. So if you feel like, you know what, I'm not ready. Maybe I should just sit out and work for a year. Cool. Do that. And, and unfortunately the way society is set up, it may be to your detriment if you right. want to get a, a kind of a regular job or, or whatever that means. If you want to work for another company, right. um, just because usually there's some type of requirement for the paperwork. You got to have your bachelor's. You got to have your master's to be able to even do the work. Um, but I'm an entrepreneur, man. So I'm like, do it yourself. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Hell yeah. To be honest. <laughs> yeah. Talking about being an entrepreneur and just like. Yeah. Society expectation, like yeah. what, what makes you a misfit? Makes like, me a misfit. Yeah. I don't listen. <laughs> 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 I 
Why not? I don't listen. Um, I, I don't want to. And I don't, I don't, I, I've always been the kid that, or the guy that, you know, asks the additional why something's being done, you okay. know? Asking why. Yeah. It's, so it's like, okay, if, you know, like, for example, like you're an attorney, you have to dress a certain way and portray yourself a certain way. Why? And if you can't give me a logical answer, then I'm gonna think it's bullshit, to be honest. So if, and this applies to anything I do in my life. So if there's an established norm for how something is expected to to be done um, or to be seen or whatever the case may be, if I can't logically wrap my head around, okay, me doing this is going to yield a tangible result that's favorable for me and aligns with my interests and what I want, then I'm not gonna do it, period, you know? So, and- for me, you know, that I guess that kind of makes me a misfit in that I'm a kind of an outcast. I won't say an outcast, but I'm, I notice that I'm noticeably different than many of my attorney colleagues. And it's just, just, and even when I go to networking events and stuff with other attorneys, um, you know, like apart from my core friends that I, I, I routinely, you know, kind of hang out with from law school, I generally sometimes feel like there's some type of disconnect. Um, and I don't know if it's like me not not wanting to play the game or whatever the case may be, but I don't want to play the game. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I've never been an ass kisser. I've never been cool with the whole politics of any industry. Um, you know, I, I I I keep to myself a lot in many ways, just because I'm kind of doing the work and I focus on my family. Yeah. So, yeah, I just I think because I ask why so much and I just don't accept established norms, just because that's what people have told me what they are. I don't care. <laughs> do you, man? I'm yeah, do me, I, man. <laughs> yeah, I really don't. Where can people find your work? My work, uh, USPTO.gov. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, uh, like my website and everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, handles, whatever you want to throw out. There. Yeah, yeah. So on Instagram, I'm the brand lawyer. Um, on LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn in slash the brand lawyer too. Uh, my website is Hawkins, HawkinsIP.com. That's my last name, H-A-W-K-I-N-S-I-P, I's and Igloo, P's and Peter.com. Um, yeah, that's the main way that I'm found online. Fantastic. Go check awesome. this guy out. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking. Dude, yeah, this was dope. <laughs> Huge thanks to Dare for coming on the show today. It was amazing talking to him, learning more about what he does, how he's gone through his career path and how he's chosen what exactly he's chosen feel free to check out any of the links referring to him or anything else that we discussed in the description or in the show notes and any other content related will be around me thank you for watching and until next time i'll see you on the internet